Hi. Welcome to Nocturna, a horror podcast. Today, you're invited to the edge of reality to witness the horrible things that lie beyond its horizon. We'll explore a captivating tapestry of dread and cosmic terror, where the intensity of our descriptions may elicit a range of emotions, from spine-tingling thrill to disquieting unease. As we delve into the depths of these stories, we invite listeners to embrace the full spectrum of sensation that may be evoked, understanding that the chilling nature of our content may both exhilarate and unsettle, depending on individual preferences. As you embark on this immersive journey with Nocturna, prepare to surrender to the captivating tales that both stir the depths of your imagination and awaken the dormant fears within you. Episode 1. Calling Out. The story you're about to hear is a work of fiction. Probably. Please listen to me when I tell you that I am a fraud. If there's a single courtesy you might ever offer to me is the acceptance of and attending to those words. My colleagues can never be informed of the circumstances surrounding my imposture. Not because I have lied or cheated or plagiarized or stolen, but because I would risk becoming the subject of something I'm said to have overcome, a novel case of human illness to be treated. And I dare not risk for their sake treatment by the next soul unfortunate enough to wear the heavy cloak of one who has known too much. But I'll start at the beginning. Annapolis wasn't always my home. I was born in New Jersey growing up under the great shadow of Princeton University, where my father taught anthropology. For all my father's own interest in culture, he let little of it in our home. I wasn't permitted to purchase my own records or stay out late with friends on the weekends. When I graduated high school, Ivy League wasn't a point of pride for my parents. It was an expectation, a minimum. Though I always had a fascination with the world around me and how it worked, it was at Harvard that my love for biochemistry flourished. The expensive academies that had, as of yet, been my chief environment of instruction were nothing compared to the funding and prestige of a school of near-countless Nobel laureates. I eventually moved to Maryland in 1980, where I took up a position with the National Institutes of Health in charge of my own lab. My team and I studied cell physiology with an emphasis on degenerative diseases. I had a state-of-the-art facility, dedicated staff, and pay commensurate with my pedigree, though it wasn't without issue. The stress of performing science where science had, as of yet, failed was ever-present and crushing, and my drinking became near constant, although I never let it diminish the quality of my work. I can at least say that. Sometime during late summer of 1994, we started working in conjunction with a small group of graduate students from Johns Hopkins on a peculiar set of cases of motor neuron disease. There had been six noted instances all over the country in which patients were discovered to have a sudden twitch in the auricularis superior, a muscle just over the outer ear. One would assume, correctly, that muscle spasms are common and, on their own, no cause for alarm. It was unfortunate, therefore, that these spasms were able to pull the patients out of deep sleep. I shouldn't have to tell you how detrimental chronic insomnia is to the health of the afflicted. Now, if spasms and persistent wakefulness alone were the curiosity of the thing, I suspect the details of these patients would have never arrived at my desk and I'd be off living a life in which the things I now wish to forget remained unknown. 
However, as it is, infants all born within a week of each other spread across the country with traits that so puzzled clinical pathologists is exactly the sort of thing that the institutes deem worthy of exploration. We searched for unifying factors, but the children varied biologically in nearly every way. The nearest exception was sex, five male, one female. This implied behavior of a genetic disorder that follows the X chromosome not unlike colorblindness. Of course, if it was on the X chromosome, the chances of the girl carrying the affliction dropped severely, but it wasn't impossible. However, gene testing showed no irregularities of any kind. The children felt biologically distinct from one another. A firm diagnosis remained elusive. Electromyography tests of the muscle and nerves showed curious patterns during the spasms, which lasted longer than the standard momentary muscle twitches, sometimes having continuous movement up to 20 or 30 seconds. The contractions were so rapid and continuous it was entirely possible that the vibrations were resonating in portions of the skull and stimulating the inner ear. Our belief was that the muscle was able to bypass the eardrum entirely and the subjects woke because they could hear it. Long before they came to us, the infant's physicians had initially attempted to treat them with assorted muscle relaxers to varying results. Carisoprodol aided in sleep but ultimately didn't treat the condition. Metaxalone was considered too dangerous for infants at the time, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories were wholly ineffective. When we independently verified that the spasms were indeed so far treatment-resistant, we assembled a small team from the research groups involved. One member of this team was a man named Michael Taylor, a pharmacologist from Rochester. Michael was perfectly nice, if a bit antisocial. He came highly recommended from a colleague in infectious disease and was said to have a bit of a magic touch when it came to dosage. This was obviously highly desirable when it came to children. He mostly kept to himself, only speaking when called upon, but this wasn't unusual in the academic or scientific fields. In my experience, I've found that many want their work to speak for itself. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. In fact, I found it a gift to be able to abstain from overseeing his daily work. Still, it meant I didn't get to acquaint myself with him as well as I did the other professionals working under my purview. That's why I found it strange when, six months or so into our research, he gifted me a bottle of wine. The vineyard was one unfamiliar to me, a Monto something, a red Bordeaux, aged 15 years in celebration of my 15th year at the Institutes. I wasn't aware that he had been so knowledgeable of my professional history, considering the little we had spoken never extended beyond our shared tasks or simple pleasantries. Still, at this point in the deeper throes of my alcoholism, I wasn't averse to a present of wine or liquors. I was often the last in the lab, and past sunset could be found in my private office enjoying a drink while I pondered the notes and challenges the day had brought us. A few days after receiving the bottle, I had decided I would open it after becoming aware that I had apparently reached the bottom of a dalmore I had been slowly draining. Upon uncorking, I was taken aback that the scent of the wine was that of an old pantry, like expired flour. Many nights I lie awake wishing that my penchant for imbibing was weak enough that I could have put that bottle down or thrown it out. The taste was earthy. Not the leathery earthiness of a good red, though. There was a flavor that, at my best, I can only describe as something old, if such a thing is possible. It wasn't unpleasant, per se, just strangely musty and 
almost tobacco-like, but also nothing like tobacco. As each sip went down, I seemed to remember a flicker and buzzing of the lights in the office. I had one drink, two, three. I started losing count. The bottle seemed to never empty, and my thirst proved unquenchable, increasing even. The sound of the room seemed to take over my senses. I I could see it. Every time the heavy bottle hit my oaken desk, the shockwave of sound emanated in a perfect circle, twisting the light around it like a hot fire. Every tap, every thud, every impact seemed to move in slow motion through the air as I felt them tear through my body with a foreign warmth. I went to stand to leave the room, but I was suddenly falling. Not to the floor in a drunken stupor, but through the molecules themselves. I was still sitting. I was standing. I was running on a wet cobblestone street as the clack of my shoes and the sound of my lungs struggled to drown out the constant buzzing of my office lamp. My skin tore from a branch as I ran through a forest and blood spilled onto the hearth of my childhood home. Stone. All around me, stone. An infinite, quivering, crystalline structure. I felt every vibration as if I were some great spider perched upon her web. I was the earth, and I rumbled, and shook, and wept. A voice. Not an inner monologue, not a person. A resonance. My being shook with fear and rumble like children of war. It spoke not in words, but in idea. Not in conversation, but instruction. Not with malice, but with the warm intent of meaning. My jaw locked. As I struggled to breathe, my vision became tunneled then black, then true nothingness. My senses evaporated before me. I tasted no wine, I felt no crystals, I saw no street and heard no buzzing lamps. I saw, no, saw isn't the right word, I knew. I was given answers. I was a catalyst, an enzyme, I was oxygen. Every part of my being was alight with Promethean fire and I was one with a cosmos. But it wasn't our cosmos. A second one. One of necrotic blacks and radiant lights and leviathan depths and titanic highs and the sounds of a million stars and birth, death, collapse, and nova. Silence. I sat with my hands on the wheel, parked outside of the building where my lab made its home. I don't remember getting into the car. I recognized it was late, maybe past midnight. I went to look at my watch and my eyes reflexively pulled away when they saw it was cracked and held soil buried beneath the glass crystal. I noticed a pain in my arm where both my jacket and shirt had been torn through. There was an open wound slowly dying the clothes around it red. The sky was as clear as it had ever been, but looking down, my shoes sported wet mud. I sat, unblinking and unmoving, the silence acting like pressure against my head, causing it spinning sensation. I focused on my breathing, lowering the window just an inch. The cool air helped me regain my composure before I felt strong enough to walk around and wake my legs which had fallen asleep. I looked around to see no person or thing or clue to act as evidence to what had passed. Then, as calm against all hope embraced me once more, I journeyed home. Sleep quickly found me, and I awoke to the sun higher in the sky than I was accustomed. 
I was going to be late, but received no call from anyone at the institutes as to my whereabouts. I splashed cold water on my face before checking the wound on my arm, which was healing curiously quickly. I suspected by nightfall it would be as if it had passed like a Princeton summer storm. I arrived at the lab half past three to a relaxed, optimistic setting and was greeted with handshakes as I walked in. It is disconcerting to find chalkboards and notebooks riddled with your own handwriting when your memory consists of nothing but a twisted, woven nightmare. Pharmacological recipes and dosing ideas had been written and crossed out and rewritten in a pattern that dipped in rows like oscillating waves. My subordinates congratulated each other while I was deaf to them as the buzzing of the lights had overtaken my ability to hear. I walked over to a single sheet of paper, separate from the others but still in my handwriting. Listed on it were detailed explanations of drugs to be used, synthesis methods, and immediate treatment to be administered to our subjects while I slept. They were fast-acting, and by the time I had come in that day, had already proven to be effective. Early EMG tests noted the amplitude of muscle and nerve activity had dropped by an average of 96.5%. It appeared I had done it. I gave a false smile to my colleagues and retired trembling and shaking to my office where I hoped to find reprieve or clue or even riddle. Instead, I was struck by three things regarding my desk. An absent bottle of red wine, a full bottle of Dalmore, and a letter of resignation from one Michael Taylor. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nocturna. If you enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. You can keep up with the show on social media at Nocturna Podcast. And if you want to support even more, take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That feedback is one of the best ways to help the show grow. And most importantly, tell a friend. Just make sure they can handle it. Thanks again. Oh, and stay safe. You never know what's out there.